Morning. Um, so we're going to have a series of Bible readings just to start off. Um, I thought I might make it a bit interactive, which is a good thing to do. So I'll hand out some bits of paper. You can take one or throw it behind you. Or you've got a Bible and you like, you don't mind standing up and reading. You can keep one and keep passing them back. Maybe some of the kids might like to take one, and um, when you've all got one, we'll we'll read together. <laughs> We're all very different. We're a different um, group of people, different backgrounds, different ways of thinking, different opinions on some issues. Um, the thing that I'll be speaking on this morning is something where people have all sorts of different opinions, as you'll soon see. Um, and that's why I kind of like to start by just reading the scriptures together, because the scripture, reading the scripture um, physically, but coming under its presence and authority is the thing that sort of binds us and unifies us and it's, some, it's an umbrella under which we all, it's a banner, if you like, under which we all stand. And um, so just hearing God's words together is, um, is a precious thing. Have they all gone or still going? Disappeared, all right, at the very last. Okay, so um, let's start in no particular order. Maybe whoever's got Joshua 1.9, you'll see that they're all from a similar theme. Uh, whoever's got Joshua 1.9 might like to stand up and with a loud voice read that for us. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be afraid, and do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Thanks so much. Uh, Exodus chapter 14 and verse 14. Who's got that? Love this verse. The Lord shall fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. Excellent. All right, thanks so much. Now, Psalm 29, verse 11. The Lord will give strength unto his people, and the Lord will bless his people with peace. Great. And then there's Psalm 85, verses 8 to 9. I will hear what the Lord God will speak, for he will speak peace to his people and to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. All right, what about Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3 and 4? Thou will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on me, because he trusteth in me. Trust ye in the Lord forever, for in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. Great. And Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I'll cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. He, his rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 11. Who's got that? Finally, brethren, farewell, become complete, be of good comfort, he of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Philippians chapter 4, verse 7, 6 and 7 actually, I reckon. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, be thanksgiving, let your requests be made unto God, and the peace of God. Which surpasses all understanding, regarding hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And last of all, I think there's Colossians three fourteen out there somewhere. 
but above all these things put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Rightio. And let me finish off by uh, reading John chapter 14, which we all know well. I'm sure you can see there's a theme developing here. So John 14 is interesting. It's, um, the context is Jesus has just announced to his disciples that he's leaving, which is a huge shock to them. He said, I'm going somewhere and you can't come. That's the first time he's, that it dawns on them that he's actually serious and that something quite seismic in their life is about to happen. And he says this, he says, the, the chap has these, chapter has these bookend verses. So I'll read um, verses 1 to 3 and then 27. He says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it weren't so, I would have told you, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And then at the end of the chapter, he says in verse 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Therefore let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. All right, let's pray. Father God, we come to you, we... Thank you, we worship you as people who don't see you clearly, we don't understand you well, but we understand a little, we've seen a little and our hearts have been touched a little and we're grateful to you and we draw near to you wanting to learn and to understand and to grow, um, to be shaped by you, to be moulded by you, that your, the beauty of your um, image may be upon us increasingly and that we may give the fragrance of Christ wherever we go. So be with us now. Bless our unity. Bless our time together. In Jesus' name. Amen. Right, so we haven't been able to stand up because there's been no singing. So we're going to stand up now and have a twist and a turn and a yawn if you need to and get some cobwebs out. Bill, you can remain seated. Yep. And when you feel ready, you can sit down again. Is it possible to turn off the, um, the screen? Is that all right? Thanks. Yeah, so thank you for the opportunity to um, come and, um, and share. I'm, these are new glasses, and I'm still getting used to the whole glasses thing, so if I fiddle with them excessively, you'll forgive me. Um, yeah, so it's been 18 months since we've been back and um, had the chance to be with you, which has been... Um, yeah, it's been quite a ride. And wherever we go, pretty much, people immediately ask us. Almost the first thing they ask us is, how's it going in Papua New Guinea with COVID? Everyone's interested to know. And um, I could tell you all about that. It's been quite a long journey. Certainly don't have time enough to tell you the whole story. But I'm sure that I've often reflected on um, how we're going to look back on these years. In five years, we'll look back and what will be the, the memories out of it. And I'm sure, for me, there are quite a few sharp memories already, which I thought I would sh share with you. Um, in the early days of the epidemic, uh, we went around and we um, had community gatherings trying to talk to people about the disease. 
and uh, ask them, what have you heard about coronavirus? And we always get big gatherings whenever we show up anywhere and, and people, I sit on the front of the Land Cruiser and people all crowd around and, um, and we ask them, what have, what have you heard about this? And people were saying all sorts of amazing things. One guy said, this, it's this virus that when it lands on your skin, it, will, it burns a hole and comes out the other side. And, um, and he was not an odd fellow. He wasn't mentally disturbed in any way. He was saying what lots of people thought. Um, they had heard all manner of different stories. Um, we had doctors early on in the piece going on their social media saying, I'm not going to work. If I go to work, I'll, it'd be like committing suicide. Why would I do that? That was quite, you know, quite common. All sorts of stuff. I had a, um, an American specialist, I remember this very vividly, ring me up. <clears throat> and he had arrived in the country and he was consulting to the government at this stage because, as you remember, America had it quite bad early on. And he was consulting and he rang me. And I said, look, thanks very much. I've seen you in the paper. Thanks for the work you're doing. But I'm trying to say to him, look, just keep in mind that we're not America. I was wanting not to offend him. Doctors can get a bit antsy like that if you <laughs> say, look, you know, we're not America. And he goes, oh, yeah, I know. Look, you know, I've been here. And I said, yeah, but he said, basically, just hang on because this thing's coming at you like a tidal wave and just... Whatever you can do, get ventilators, get bags, because you're going to have to be ventilating people by hand, and good luck, he said. And um, I just remember, whoa, what is going on? Like, this guy was so, you know, he was really worked up in a big way. And I'm going, I knew, because, you know, I've been in the country long enough, no one's going to get ventilated. Not in Papua New Guinea, and there's, you know, that just ain't going to happen. Most of our health centres don't even have oxygen. So I don't know what he's talking about, but, you know, it's not going to work out that way. Um, we had hospitals closing their doors. I would drive past the major hospital, the equivalent of the Royal Adelaide in a province. Our doors are closed. Um, no, sorry. Because of the level of fear that people had about this. We had a, I had a video sent to me uh, from a major business leader explaining how the real purpose behind vaccines and the reason why that... Um, Scott Morrison was sending vaccines to PNG early on was because they were trying to wipe out the black population of the world and that's the real reason why you know the governments of the world are sponsoring to get vaccines into Africa is because they're trying to kill all of the black people because they know that the vaccines will kill everyone that's the sort of stuff that was being sent around in our country um, it's been pretty wild I can, I can tell you the levels of fear and anxiety have been enormous from the very beginning um, with this thing. And we had um, hundreds of millions of Kina spent on, on this problem. And this is a country where, you know, we don't have a lot of money. The whole budget for health is probably 700 million Kina for about 9 million people. So that's about $300 million. That's our entire health budget. And they were spending hundreds of millions on COVID. Uh, we had police blocking roads everywhere which meant that no one could get to hospital because you couldn't get through the roadblocks. We had people chased away from the markets because you weren't allowed to get together, even though that's the only way you live to survive is to sell your vegetables every day. They just chase people off. Um, and if you've been reading what's been going on in the developing world at all, which is probably unlikely because there's not a lot of it in the Australian media, you'll see that this problem is, is there. I don't know if any of you saw 
probably a few weeks ago now in Fiji. What's happening in Fiji? Because Fiji's now starting to have this problem and everyone's advising them to lock down. And of course, they're starting to riot because you lock us down and we can't eat. And that's not an awareness that people in the West actually have you know, very strongly that in the developing world, if you try and lock people down and there's no job keeper or anything to keep you going, well, then you're going to starve. So it's a very different, a different world. Uh, and basically what's happened in PNG is the economy has been totally destroyed because we rely very heavily on mines and oil and gas infrastructure and that's all been stopped. And that means the practical outworking of that has meant that hospitals like ours had a 90% cut in operational funding this year. So you basically can't run. Uh, you can't pay for anything like for diesel for the generator to keep the power on because there's no money. So that's the sort of impacts that the disease has been having. Anyway, so we were going through all of this in the last 12 months. This is going somewhere, by the way. Um, and I was reading the Christmas story, as we do every year. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but in the Christmas story, there's a theme that seems to run through it. Um, and it starts, actually, with the reading that we had, which was the one from Zechariah about, Behold, your king's coming to you, riding on a donkey. And if you remember the verse, it says, He will speak peace to his people. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but if you read the Christmas story, what's the very first, what's the very first thing that God says to people after all these hundreds of years not hearing anything and then God seems to write I'm starting the story what's the very first thing that gets said to a human being does anyone know who's the first person that God comes to in the story Zechariah Zechariah the priest and what's the first thing that gets said to him don't be afraid don't be afraid and then the second person is Mary Gabriel comes to her. What's the first thing that gets said to her? Mary, don't be afraid. And then when finally the birth takes place and the angel appears to the shepherds, what's the first thing that the angel says to the shepherds? He says, don't be afraid. Have you ever noticed that? It's this theme that when God appears to people, the first thing it seems that he often has to say is, don't be afraid. Now, why, why is that? I've... So here we are, you know, I'm thinking this through in this culture where the country is going, you know, quite off the scale in terms of fear. And yet in this story, um, God is speaking in this way to us. In fact, if you read the scriptures more, you'll see that that's not a Christmas thing. It's actually there pretty much all the way through. If you read over and over when God meets people, the first thing he says to them is don't be afraid. There's lots and lots of accounts. When Joshua meets the commander of the Lord outside Jericho, first thing, he says, don't be afraid. Gideon meets the angel, don't be afraid. Daniel has his dreams, his visions. The angel says to him, don't be afraid. Remember when Peter is in the boat and he finally realizes who this guy is who's next to him because he catches all these fish and it dawns on him that this is not a human being, a normal human being, and he, what's his response? He falls down and says, go away from me because I'm a sinful man. And Jesus says to him, don't be afraid. So it's there. It's this current that's through the scriptures. Now, there's two things, I think, that come out of that for me that I want to share with you. So what we're talking about today is we're going to talk about fear and fear as it applies to the whole coronavirus thing and how we live as Christians during this epidemic. Because there's two 
points that I'm trying to bring out here. One, the first is that fear and anxiety is something that's deeply bound up in the human condition. Every single one of us. From the very beginning, what happens when Adam and Eve make their mistake? They realise they're naked and they run and hide because they were afraid. That's what it says. I, I hid myself because I was afraid. Fear is not something that they had ever known before, but now fear and anxiety is something that becomes part of their nature and it's been part of all of our natures since forever. It's something that we have from the time that we're very young. It never leaves us until the time we die and it completely transcends cultures. Every culture, every person understands what it means to be afraid, to have anxiety. It looks different. I can tell you from experience that anxiety looks different in Papua New Guinea. People present differently to hospital with clinical anxiety. In Australia, it looks different. In Papua New Guinea, for example, people can prevent, uh, present with all sorts of bodily manifestations of their anxiety. They can come in carried in unconscious, for example. It took me by surprise the first time I ever saw that. Something deeply unconscious. And it's anxiety. And two days later, they're up and walking around normally. And so that's quite a common thing in the developing world. We call that somatoform disorders. It means a bodily response to being anxious. Um, in Australia, it looks different. But the common thing is that we all get afraid. We all get anxious from time to time. The second thing is that God in the way that he loves us as a father, when he approaches us as human beings in his world, he often is speaking to us about not being afraid, speaking peace to us, speaking in a way that aims to heal us from our fears and from our anxieties and to, to relieve us of that tension that's been there ever since we've been in sin and, and running away from him. So these two things, we are a people who are prone to anxiety and fears, that's bound up in us, doesn't matter what our skin colour or who we are. And God is speaking to us to heal of us of that fear and to, um, to transcend that fear. So it's with those thoughts going around in my head, I'm looking back on this whole coronavirus, um, what shall we call it, um, era, I suppose. Um, and what's going on in the world. And thinking to ourselves, okay, as a Christian, as someone who has the light of the gospel and who's been touched by God, how does that knowledge affect me and how I live in this age and in these events? And I want to share some of those reflections with you. The first point is to let's talk about fear and have um, some reflections on the nature of fear. The first point I want to make about fear is that fear is something that leads to distortion. Or another way of saying is that people who are afraid have terrible eyesight. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, when I was very young, um, my mother and her parents, they had a small, what would you call it, beach house, I suppose, at Middleton. We called it Uncle Tom's Cabin. And it's a very tiny thing. And I remember very clearly, it's one of my early childhood memories of going to visit this place. It was a tiny little Besser block place and there were so many of us crammed in. I think I was in the kitchen on a stretcher or something like that. And I was very young and it was dark. And I remember the shadows on the Besser block. And it just 
freaked me out. In the darkness, I was, you know, imagining that I could see people coming along the corridor, and it was just, you know, and I don't know how long it went on for, but eventually someone came out of those shadows and said, can you be quiet, please? Like, you know, actually in my fears, I must have been making noise or something, and it was keeping everyone awake. In fact, there was nothing there. Now, almost everyone has had that experience, right, when you're a kid of just, you know the shadows on the wall doing funny things, or imagining something. Your fear creates something out of the nothing. That's pretty, pretty normal behaviour. And um, so this idea that when we're afraid, we lose perspective of what's truly true. Yeah? Now, there's all manner of scriptural examples of this. Um, the one that comes to mind is in Numbers chapter 13 and 14. You may remember this story. This is when the spies go to check out the land. Do you remember this? So they go in. It's a good place. It's a very good place. It's fertile. They've just come through the desert, remember, and all of a sudden they've got this place with this grain growing and grapes and all sorts of stuff. But there's big people in the land. How big? Well, they're about nine feet tall, which, you know, I'm six and a bit feet so that's 50% taller than me all right and that's about the difference between a freakishly large adult and a you know medium-sized adult in terms of proportion so it's not you know it's not gargantuan but it's big what happens as you remember the story is that Joshua and Caleb are all for it but the other ten say what did they say do you remember the words exactly they said two things one is, this is a land that devours its inhabitants. It's a land that devours its inhabitants. Just think about those words for a second. The second thing they said is that the people there, we are grasshoppers compared to these people. One, the land devours its people. And two, we're grasshoppers. Now, neither of those things is even remotely accurate, is it? Obviously, they're big people. But they're not grasshoppers, you know, we're not grasshoppers in their sight. And the land clearly doesn't devour its people. But they're afraid. That's, that's what's going on. They've seen these big people and they're afraid. And very shortly after that, they're saying, we want to go back into captivity and be under the whip again and making bricks. And then after that, they say, if you try and stop us from going back and being into captivity and under the whip, we're going to stone you. And that's, you can see like the cycle of panic that's sort of taking hold here. It's just getting, it's just getting out of control and they're losing it. And, you know, Joshua and Caleb have all manner of difficulty trying to restrain these people from just marching off. That's what fear does when it gets out of control. People lose perspective on what's actually going on. Now, I've seen that. Um, play out in Papua New Guinea in some quite amazing ways in the last 12 months. It's really driven home to me how panic, unreasonable fear can make for awful decision-making, terrible perspective. Um, I mentioned just, you know, the police chasing people off from the markets. But the idea that, hang on, I'm sick. Where do you go when you're sick? I've got to go to a hospital. But I can't go to the hospital because they put a roadblock to stop me from getting sick. But I'm already sick. And, I, you know, I'm really, really sick. Sorry, doesn't matter. COVID roadblocks. Now, that's just, you know, that's craziness. But that's what's happening. Currently, in Papua New Guinea, they used to quarantine you for 14 days for going into a country where coronavirus is everywhere, even though I was coming from a country where there was no coronavirus active. This is a few months ago before we started to see more cases. 
21 days. Uh, sorry, 14 days. Now, fortunately, they've changed it, right? Done away with it? No, they've increased it to 21 days to go into a country where coronavirus is, you know, as common now as any virus. Go, you know, how do you work that? That doesn't make sense. But that's the sort of thing that happens when people get afraid. They make decisions that don't make sense. We saw very early on a huge stampede of people trying to get out of the country, um, get on a plane as fast as we could because the idea was that this thing was going to roll over us like a massive tidal wave and I don't want to get stuck here uh, in a country with a poor health system. I've got to get out as fast as we can. Not just secular uh, ministries. In fact, I have a good friend who uh, goes all around the world providing solar power services to many ministries and he was telling me on the phone the other day it's really sad because many ministries have are just on the borderline of staying afloat because so many people have left and some have closed down and probably will never reopen again because in the, in the midst of the panic people have just packed up and gone and it's once they shut them down the government may not actually allow them to come back uh, the door will be closed to them for good so this is very sobering these things um, what does it look like for us well we saw this just the other day I think Natasha was telling us they did a survey of people in Australia and they asked them if you get coronavirus what's your chance of dying from it I don't know if anyone saw this did you guys see this research so they asked a group of people all ages they said Let's imagine you get coronavirus tomorrow. What's your chance of dying from it? Any ideas what the answer was? The average, average response was, I've got a 30% chance of dying from coronavirus. Now, does anyone know what the real answer is? Yeah. So, depending on your age group, I'm sure you all know this, but the actual answer, if you can go on the Australian Bureau of Statistics website, but the average... Um, rate of death is 2.7% if you include everyone together. If you're less than 50, it's 0.05%. If you're 50 to 60, it's about 1%. If you're 60 to 70, it's still only 8% or thereabouts. And from 80 and 90, it starts to accelerate. But for most people, 70 and below, the, the, you know, even 60 and below, it's incredibly low. And it's probably even lower than that because that rate is based on people who have symptoms who get tested. And this has been the problem is that we're testing people mostly who are feeling unwell. If you test everyone, no matter how they're feeling, you actually find that there's a large number of them that have got coronavirus as well. And so the rates are even lower than that. Now that doesn't mean that it's a non-entity. It doesn't mean that it's a nothing. It's a serious disease and people are dying from it. But it's not 30% rate of death. That's the point I'm trying to make here is that when we get afraid, we get our vision gets distorted. We start to think things that are not real. They're not true. So that's the first point. <clears throat> it doesn't burn holes in your skin. Um, that's just, you know, the rate of fear. But so the first point, first point is that fear distorts. The second thing is that fear is incredibly contagious. It's unbelievably contagious. And we, we saw this very close up because in PNG we were late to get the infection. There was virtually no cases for the first several months in PNG. But 
people had phones and they were seeing pictures of you remember back in March, April last year, it was Italy that was in all of the papers and people, there was pictures of coffins and people being buried in Italy and they were seeing this and as PNG, Papua New Guineans watch very carefully what Australians do and Australia was getting very anxious and because Australia was getting anxious, Papua New Guineans started to get really anxious because the way they figure it is they're all the educated people, they're the people who bring us development so if they're afraid, we should be really afraid. And so it got really... This is long before we saw any cases. People were talking about, I'm going to be suiciding if I go to work, and it was getting really, really crazy. So that brought home to me this particular story, which you may or may not know. There was a, there was a terrible incident that happened in a place called Jodhpur in India. <coughs> this is 2008. And they went to a temple. It's a Hindu temple. They all line up to pay their respects in the temple. As they're all lined up, there's thousands of people there. Someone dropped something. It was a big bang. Someone started to run, and then they all started running. And when it was all over, there was 430 people dead uh, at the end of it. Nothing, nothing serious. It was just someone dropped something. And that's what happens when people see someone gets afraid. They get afraid. And all of a sudden it's a contagion of fear and people can do great damage to themselves just because of the fear. I think we all can appreciate that this is true. Okay? You know the feeling when you see someone doing something with respect to coronavirus, whether it's, you know, they're clicking in. I had, we had coffee with someone on our first day out of lockdown, I think it was, in Brisbane. We met with them and, and you could tell that they were anxious to find the place where I have to... What do, you, what do you call it? The QR codes and scanning or whatever it is. And we had not, we'd just come out of lockdown, out of quarantine. So what's this? What's going on? Like why, why are they so anxious to find a place to tell the government where they are? And, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't so much a case of doing the right thing. They were anxious about the fact that they couldn't find the place where I have to scan in. So it had started to become an anxiety for them. And that really, we were looking at each other going, oh, that's a bit odd, what's going on here? We notice that when people start doing things and we're not doing them, we go, should we be doing that too? So the point I'm trying to make is that there is this contagion of fear. Now, the other side of it is that peace is also contagious. The problem is that peace is a lot less contagious than fear. So when someone is able to project calm, particularly in a leadership forum, that helps a lot. But it ain't nearly so strong as the opposite. The opposite is really strong. And we just need to be aware of that. I'm, I'm just saying this by way of observations as we understand ourselves and the situation that we're in. First of all, fear distorts our thinking and number two, it's really contagious. Okay, so as Christians then, how are we supposed to respond to this? How do we live in this era of fear and in the era of coronavirus? Well, the first point I'd like to make is that comes from Ephesians 5 um, and Ephesians 5 has these words in it I'll read them to you chapter 5 verse 8 says you were once darkness but now you are light in the Lord walk as children of light Now, if I gave someone who had never seen 
the Bible, never read the Bible, knew nothing about the Judeo-Christian God, if I gave them a Bible, said start reading, almost the very first thing that they would learn about God is that he's a God of light. Perhaps the very first thing you would learn is that God is before all things and that all things have been created by him. But the second thing you would learn in verse 2 of Genesis chapter 1 is that out of darkness, God spoke and light came into the world. So that light is something that comes from God. God is a God of light. You see this all through the Bible. When Jesus comes into the world, he says, I'm the light of the world. What does John say? John said that light came into the world, but that people love preferred darkness to light. God is a God of light. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means a whole heap. In fact, we did this in our church back in Papua New Guinea. We've been learning about who God is and what is this God that we're talking about. We spent a whole sermon on talking about the fact that God is light. It means lots of things, but to shorten it, one of the things that it means for us is that if God comes near to us and he resides in us by his Holy Spirit, then our lives become characterised by an increasing propensity to see things clearly, more clearly, than we did before. If I ask Paul to turn off the lights, because he's right next to the switch, you can do that for us. <clears throat> when, someone, when the lights go off, you're in a situation where the power's out, two things immediately happen. One is that everyone starts to feel just that little bit anxious. Not now, because I've warned you. I was going to do it by surprise. But you know, Have you ever been in that situation? You're in a big hall or something like that, all of a sudden, total darkness. You can hear the sort of ripples of anxiety go through the room. Thanks, Paul. You can turn that back on. Where does the anxiety come from? What well, comes in part from the fact that we can't see. You, know, you can't... What's going on? Okay. And the reverse is the truth. When the light comes into our lives metaphorically speaking, we start to see things as they actually are. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means three things. First thing is that it means I start to understand myself better. I see the light as it shines upon me. Who is it that I actually am? How do I function? What is it that's deep down in me? Where did that come from? What are the things that make me weak? What are the things where I'm strong? I understand myself in a better way. Now, I have three brothers. Um, and one of them suffers from agoraphobia. Agoraphobia, for those of you who don't know, is a fear of being around crowds of people like this. And this started for him when he was in grade 12. It totally ruined his grade 12 year. In fact, his first episode happened when he was sitting down for his final exams in grade 12. And it just came on him like a flood and it destroyed his, his exams and, and it affected him for many years. In fact, he still lives with it. He's older than me. Um, and it's getting better. In fact, now he's a pastor in a church and he stands up like I'm doing now and he leads the singing and um, you know he's a, he's a vastly different person. But when I talk to him about it, and it's still not you know, 100% easy for him to talk about it, he says things like this. He says, it's still not gone, but I understand it better. I can sense when it's coming on. Like I know that if I get tired, um, if I don't eat well, if I don't exercise well, I can feel it's right there on the border. 
you know, it may spring on me at any moment. Now, that's an example of what I mean. His journey of growing as a human being, growing spiritually, is that he's understanding himself better. And many people who suffer from panic attacks, mental illness, this is a big part of their journeys, understanding me, understanding how I tick, the things that have impacted me and how they still impact me and learning to understand myself in a way that's truth. Um, that's the light as it shines upon me. And that's part of Chris's story. But the second part of the light shining upon us is that we also learn to see others. I see you as you are. You know, and the world as it is. Um, I have patients that I counsel from time to time. I recall one uh, who was very distressed and cut it short without revealing any details. You know, she was quite obsessed with the idea that people were worried about her skin condition or whatever. She had, I think, some mild acne or something like that. And I said to her, look, <clears throat> people are not interested in your skin condition. They're too busy thinking about themselves. That's what teenagers do. The teenagers that you think are thinking about you are actually worried about your thinking about them. You know, that's the truth of, you know, we spend a lot of time worrying about what people are thinking about me. They're not thinking about you, sorry. For the most part, they're thinking about other things. So understanding other people and how they tick and also how the world ticks and how it operates. Now, that's crucial for this whole coronavirus thing because we need to understand what's in play at the moment. Why are governments making the decisions that they're making? Well, in part, it's because of the pressures that operate on governments, particularly democratic governments. For example, it's incredibly difficult for a democratic politician to say, let's have more coronavirus infections. Do you know what I mean? That's a bad idea if you want to stay elected because the opposition guy is going to go, that guy is going to get you killed. Or woman. They're going to get you killed. It's electoral suicide. It's much better to say, I will keep you safe. No coronavirus infections, you know, zero complete fortress, like, you know, a la Western Australia, that sort of thing. That's why that guy's so popular, because the Western Australians think he's keeping us safe. Now, whether that's the wise play or not, that's the difficulty. But it's the safe play in terms of how politics operates. It's very, very difficult to say, look, let's, you know, perhaps have less measures, less face masks or less, you know, do singing because it's much harder to project that message that perhaps less of these measures might be okay because someone's going to go, look what they're doing in Victoria, you're going to get us killed. It's really, really hard for them to do that. Now, that's not a conspiracy saying that the government's all behind, you know, it's all making it up. No, but we need to understand the pressures that operate on politicians to understand what's actually going on. Similarly with the media. Okay? We need to understand the media and the way the media works. If you speak to any journalist, the golden rule is boredom is death. You know? Media doesn't do boredom. Because the moment you start boring people, they pick up the remote and they change channels. Have you ever noticed how all the commercials, these guys with incredibly deep voices advertising the most, you know, MasterChef or something, you know, incredibly dull, <laughs> saying, <laughs> what will happen on Thursday night will leave you 
gasping. <laughs> Have you ever... Oh, where do they get these guys? They roll them out. You know, they get really deep voices making it sound as though the apocalypse is about to happen on Channel 7. You know, and it's like that continually because it's about drama. You've got to create drama. That's the way the media works. It's all about drama. They don't do, you know, David Attenborough really well. I mean, David Attenborough's getting great because he's got these fantastic cameras, but, you know, it's, it's hard to keep people glued to it. It's got to be punchy. It's got to be... Now, that's why every bulletin numbers coronavirus cases today active because that gets people's attention. Anyone who works in the media will tell you that the way internet news goes is it's all about clicks. It's all about hits. They, they can measure what stories are being clicked repeatedly and it's all about the headline. It's about the first two lines, in fact. It's got to grab people. So telling people that 90% of people who got coronavirus recovered and feeling fine, some of them go, oh, gee, that was, you know, what was all the fuss about? That, that doesn't cut it. You're not going to hear that. I had a friend who's a doctor early in the epidemic, and he was telling me, man, this is bad. This is really bad. And I said, okay, that's interesting. I hadn't seen any cases yet myself. Later on, we saw some. I said, where are you getting your information from? He says, oh, I've got a mate. He works in ICU. And I said, mate, that's not a great source. You know, of course a doctor who works in ICU is going to tell you how bad coronavirus is because all the cases they're seeing are bad. You need to talk to a general practitioner who's seeing all the other side of the cases to get some sense of balance to this. It's not that the ICU guys are lying. It's just that they see a certain subset. That's not balanced. You've got to get a feel for the whole thing in order to get some peace about what's actually going on here. And that's the problem with the media, is that that other side of it you're not going to hear. You're only going to hear about the... because they've got to keep you going. And now that's not a conspiracy either. It's just the way the media works. You just have to understand it. <clears throat> so, light about myself, light about the world around us, and most importantly of all, light about God. Who is God? Who is this God? And how do I relate to him? Now, the verses we read, the precious verses from Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3, which hopefully is one that everyone knows. There are lots of verses like this in the Bible. Do you remember what it said for those of you who can, who can repeat that for me? Yeah. I will, he will be in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. The important point there is that when that person's mind is fixed on the big picture, which, of course, God is right in the centre of the big picture, peace is what descends onto that person's life because they see things in perspective as they actually are. Um, when I first went overseas, my first time overseas as a student, I got on the plane, left Adelaide Airport, I was heading for Thailand. I had a... There was no headphone, you know, USB thingies. Back then I had a cassette recorder. And Karina had recorded a cassette for me. And the first thing on the cassette, or maybe it was the last thing, I can't remember all the rest of it, but the part I remember was that she read Psalm 46. And even to this day, whenever Psalm 46 is read, we have a sort of a knowing look between ourselves because that's our psalm that she's given to me when I first... And it's a very precious psalm. And the last part of it I'll read for you because I think it's, it's worth reading. 
There's a beautiful Sons of Korah version of this too, for those of you who like Sons of Korah, the singers from Geelong. Psalm 46 says this, Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. And the God of Jacob is our refuge. So having that perspective that God is with us, he's with me. That doesn't make me bulletproof, doesn't mean I don't get sick from coronavirus, but it means that the God of the ages, the one who's going to be exalted in times to come is with me, that gives me a peace with which to deal. And I'll go on and explain some amazing examples of that toward the finish. Okay, so first of all, we talked about fear um, and what fear is. And then the second thing we talked about is the need to walk as children of light, people who see things as it actually is. And the third thing is this injunction to not be afraid. Now, I read for you John 14, 1 and 27. I don't know if you noticed it, but it's quite specific. It doesn't say, Jesus doesn't say, I don't want you to be afraid. Did you notice that? He doesn't say, I don't want you to be afraid. He says, let not your heart be afraid. Let not your heart be troubled. Don't let it be afraid. Now, that's a command. It's an injunction, which means that there are certain things that you can do and I can do to help in this process of calming our anxieties, which are tied up in us. We'll never be completely free from them until we go to glory. It's part of the human condition. But there are things that we can do. Well, what can we do? Well, the first thing is avoid things that lead to distortion of thinking. Avoid things that lead to distortion of thinking. Now, I've got to say, the first one of these has to be social media. All right? I'm not saying give up social media, but we have to understand that almost certainly we would not see what we're seeing today if the same virus affected us 20 years ago. I'm quite certain of that. Okay. Part of what's happening here is the amplification of everything by the advent of social media. Now, I had a good friend who still have a good friend. He's, um, he's a doctor in the UK. He came as a young doctor to Compium with his wife. He's a marvellous testimony, actually. He was a DJ in the London dance scene and got converted. And um, he was telling us his story. He said, I had just joined Facebook and I had no friends. And I still have two friends. I religiously delete all of the requests. Sorry if you're one of them. Um, but the two girls, I think, are our two friends. And I wanted to get on so I could read what the doctors were saying on their doctor's group. Now, he had a 1,000-plus friends or some ridiculous number. I don't know what's a big number on Facebook. But, and he, wanted, he said, really, you've got zero friends? I've, I've never seen anyone with zero friends. Can I take a photo of your page that says you've got zero friends? So he wanted to take a photo. And he said, yeah, I've just given it up. And I had to give it up because um, I got really depressed, like so depressed that I was quite, you know, nearly suicidal. And he said that I, it took me ages to work out the reason for that. 
And the reason was that I got on Facebook and every time I got on it, I saw smiling people and they were always posting, here I am in Croatia or here I am in, you know, chasing lions around the Serengeti, having a great time. How are you going? And everyone was having a great time. And I was having a miserable time. And I couldn't see, I couldn't work out the fact that this wasn't real. Of course people put their good things on Facebook. They're never going to tell you I'm having a miserable time at home today, you know, hope you could be here with me enjoying it. They put their good stuff on Facebook. And if it's constantly that, and you're having a lousy time, he kept feeling like there's something wrong with me. He couldn't see that it was a distortion. It's not a picture of the real world. It's a part of the world. Those people weren't lying. But it's not the whole story. And eventually he worked out, that is doing my head in. I have to stop it. And so he got rid of it altogether. And that's how he sort of resurrected his mental health. So the point here is that there are things that you can do that don't help. And the problem, of course, with social media is that it's deeply addictive. It's really addictive. Unlike reading the paper or going for a walk, social media is addictive. And it's hard for people to kick it. Um, and people, countless people obviously are saying this, they know it's true, it's very hard for them to give it up, but it gets its hooks into their soul and it amplifies their fears. So as much as possible, we need to be free from that. The second thing is we need to be careful about our media in general. Now I'll tell you a story, you may not believe it, but it's actually true. Karina and I, in 2001, were, it was our first year in Papua New Guinea, when the Twin Tower thing happened. Seems like old news now, doesn't it really? 20 years ago now. We didn't see any pictures of that event for 12 months because we were in a place where there was no TV, there was no media. We didn't even see newspapers stuff. 12 months down the track, someone sent us a video of all of the stuff. You know, it was a huge shock to us. But we had a satellite phone and we rang back to Australia and we were ringing people, people we love and trust, very good, sound people asking them what was going on and they'd go, they were absolutely freaking out saying it's, it's going to be World War III and we go what? what are you talking about World War III like a plane bumps into a building building comes down it's a big thing yeah but it's not World War III what's going on they were so amped up when we got the video we could see why because it was 24 hour every I mean you guys I'm sure you remember this everywhere you went images the same thing, the clouds of dust going through the streets of New York, the building coming down, people leaping to their deaths over and over and over and over and over continuously. And the effect was that everyone was just getting more and more and more and more anxious. Now that's happening again in this, you know, everywhere you go. I walk into the surgery in the mornings, they have two TVs, as you know, on either side of the waiting areas. Inevitably, it's coronavirus courage, coverage. Karina and I watched the ABC the other night. It was just a standard day. ABC, I'm hoping to hear something about the world. 20 minutes in a half an hour coverage, it was all coronavirus. Now, the effect of that is that it makes people feel like that this is the biggest game in town. When it's not the biggest game in town, it's obviously it's a big game. I'm not saying it's nothing, but there are other things going on in the world. And so we have to be careful about what we digest and um, how much of it we get. 24-hour news coverage is not healthy for your soul. Um, the next thing is you need to be careful about what you read. 
And in particular, we need to be balanced in what we, we read. Now, I'm as guilty as anyone. Time is short. You tend to read one source of material. But that's a problem. In an internet age, that's a problem because the way the internet works, we tend to get one source of information. And we're seeing this now, in, particularly on the issue of vaccines. We sort of got into these camps, pro-vaccine, anti-vaccine, and I'm not here to tell you which you should be in, but what I am here to say is that it's very important that if you're pro-vaccine, you should read some opinions by people who are anti. And if you're anti-vaccine, you should read opinions by people who are pro. You should get a, a crossover of information so that you're getting opinions from all sides. What you shouldn't do is get locked into hearing one source of information because that's bad for all of us on any particular issue. It doesn't matter what it is. And the internet makes us quite prone to that. So um, be careful in your media. And the next thing is... Read a bit about coronavirus, read a lot about the world in general. Particularly for me, I like to read history because I find history incredibly helpful for getting perspective. This week, um, we were reading some stuff about Christians in the Middle Ages and Christians during the first five centuries when they had several major plagues smallpox or Ebola or no one really knows what it was, but they were really bad and it's if you're not a reader, there are good podcasts on this. Look up how Christians responded to the plague in the first five centuries. It's a really amazing story. I'll tell you a little bit more about it later. But the point is, is that reading history gives you some sense of perspective of this ain't the first time that there's been a germ going around the world, for one. You know, there's been big things that have happened. Even just 60 years ago when our parents, grandparents went through the polio epidemic. Um, that was enormous. So just getting some breadth of understanding as to how the world, where we've come from, helps the level of anxiety to go down about these things. Most of all, we need to spend lots of time reading God's words and getting the perspective of heaven, that God is with us, the God of Jacob is our refuge, and that, as Paul says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I'm actually, he says, I'm looking forward to it. Now, to take you to this story about what the Christians did, one, there, as I said, there were several plagues. One of the most famous is called Galen's Plague. Now, Galen was a famous Roman doctor. That's why it's called his plague. Now, unfortunately, it's named after him for reasons which are not too good for him because what happened when this terrible plague started happening, people were dying, they were carting them out, he realised very early on that well, there was nothing that he could do. So what did he do? First thing he did was he packed up and left town, went to his villa wherever it was in the hills above Rome and camped it out because he knew that he wasn't going to do any good and he didn't want to get dead. So he left. The Christians, and what did people do with their sick? They took them, they, they, they had some understanding that this was contagious, so they took their sick and they dumped them in the street, even while they're still alive, locked the doors behind them. And the Christians went out into the streets and started to take care of these, um, these people. And there was an interesting article I read this week about how just by providing basic nursing care, feeding them, giving them water, you know, the number of lives that were saved was very dramatic. But the point is that the Christian... Now, the Christians died in large numbers, I should say. 
um, during that epidemic. And interestingly, I read also this week that during the plague, this is the Great Plague, the Black Plague of Europe in the 1400s, when half of Europe's population died, half of Europe's population died, clergy died in greater numbers than the average because they kept visiting their parishioners the whole way through. So large numbers of clergy died. The point here was that the Christians became known for their response during the plague. Why? Because they had this peace that was flowing through them. That oh, They knew that their future was secure. So that they were able to minister to the sick free of anxiety. Um, didn't mean that they were bulletproof. Didn't mean that they were saying, I'm not going to get sick. They knew, they knew early on that large numbers of Christians were dying. They knew that there was a very strong chance they would die from it too. But because they were free from anxiety, they were able to minister. And the, that did enormous things for the propagation of the faith because the Gentiles, the pagans, they looked at the Christians and said, "That's why are they doing that? They're putting us to shame. They're even looking after our people. That was how the Christians became known. They were people of peace in the midst of this plague. So, understanding fear, what it is, what it does to us, walking of children as, as children of light, being not afraid, taking steps to be free from fear. Last of all, then what are the practical ways in which we need to live? Well, the first point in summarising is, however, we, I'm not here to say that coronavirus is easy. You know, it's all, you know, it's all what they're telling, it's all nonsense, it's all straightforward. It's not straightforward, it's difficult. I wouldn't want to be a politician having to make decisions. It's very difficult. But whatever decisions we make, they have to be... Decisions that are made in the absence of fear. That's the first point. So whatever you choose to decide about the vaccine, to get it or to not get it, your decision should be one that's not made on the basis of anxiety. Anxiety about the virus, anxiety about governments, anxiety about big pharmaceutical companies. When anxiety is the thing that's guiding our thinking, it's likely that our thinking will get distorted. We need to have the peace of God reigning in our hearts before we make any decisions about any of these things. Colossians we read in, um, sorry, it's actually Philippians chapter 4. Remember that verse? Let the peace of God guard your hearts. The peace of God will guard your hearts, that inexpressible peace. That means that peace is the thing that, it's like a fence around me that helps me to steer my way through this big mess, hopefully with a minimum of errors, to get out the other side, not getting diverted by some anxiety that's pulling me in this direction or that direction. The second thing is we need to pray for wisdom in lots of different areas. Not just about the simple ones that I've mentioned, will you get a jab or not get a jab, but all manner of different stuff. Should we sing or not sing? Okay, This is difficult. It's difficult because, you know, all of a sudden we're getting... Government's telling us to do things that are not making us feel comfortable. This is getting a bit close to the margins now for us. You know, what should we do? There's all manner of difficult things. On the one hand, we feel like we should obey government. That's a scriptural injunction. On the other hand, we're disciples of Christ and not of the government. And we don't want to get to a point where following the government in everything becomes the golden rule. Because it isn't the golden rule. We know that too. We have to have wisdom to find our way through it. That's not easy. We need to have wisdom to understand what's going on in the world, to see the changes that are taking place. Now, for, as a foreigner, Australian, 
going overseas, coming back. It's astonishing how much this country has changed in 18 months. It's quite astonishing. Because, you know, we're Australians, right? You know, we're, we like to think of ourselves as tough, easygoing, you know, we're the, we're the digger mindset, blah, blah, blah. So it doesn't look too good when you come back. You know, we've, it's astonishing how much freedom all of a sudden we don't have. We have people, you know, drones flying over monitoring people's movements. We have people being arrested for putting things on Facebook saying I'm going to protest against the... That's actually happened in our country. And these things were... If you had said that that was possible 18 months ago, people would have said, is he a bit borderline or, you know, come on, that's a bit paranoid, but it's actually happened. It's changed so fast, and like all over the world, it's changed very fast because in times of fear, in times of stress, things can move very quickly in, in ways that you would never have predicted. War times, times of epidemic, times of great anxiety, governments can move things very quickly. Now, hopefully it will move back again. I don't know. But we need to be mindful of the changes that are happening and to see what's going on in our world. Lastly... We need to be, so keeping all that in mind, lastly, we need to have a totally outward focus during this. Not inward. Anxiety always drives people inward. But love makes people look outward. And that was the thing that distinguished the Christians in the Middle Ages, was that they started to look outward. They had no care for their own life. They cared for the people who were suffering, the poor, uh, those that had been abandoned by their relatives and their ministry was to look outward. And I would strongly encourage you as a church to adopt the same mindset. Yes, there are certain things we're going to have to do. The government tells us we've got to do it. But let your heart be free from anxiety and let it look outward to those who are really being affected by this pandemic. Now, some of those are in our own country. They may be elderly people like someone like Bill or someone like that who's finds it hard to get out of home, it's even harder with coronavirus, be mindful of those people. Ring them or do something for them, provide for them in some way, have that outward mindset. But particularly be mindful of what's going on overseas. Now I've got to say, it's one of the really obvious things when you come back and look at the Australian media coverage, how incredibly narrow it is. It's all about us. What's going on in Victoria? What's going on in New South Wales? What's going on in Queensland? It's always like that. Have you seen a story about coronavirus in Kenya or in um, Armenia or one of these places? It's a very different story. Because if you do a story on those people, time and again, you'll see, I'm starving, my business has been shut down, I've got no money, how do I live? It gives you a different perspective on those things. And particularly for the Christians who in some countries are already very marginalised. I'm thinking of places like Pakistan. Christians there are the lowest paid workers, brick workers and very poor jobs. Those jobs have been shut down because of coronavirus restrictions. All of a sudden their lives are in jeopardy. So we need, as a church, a wealthy church, we're wealthy by any reasonable definition have this outward mindset. How are my brothers and sisters in other Christian, other countries going? How can we help them? How can we help them to get through this? Not just thinking about, you know, maybe someone might leap across from Eden Hope and infect me. And, you know, that, that sort of thinking we need to banish from our hearts and minds and turn it all outward and think about how we can be of service to others during this time. So hopefully that's been of some help. So to finish... Um, 
Let me read two verses for you which are amongst the same. This one from John chapter 16 and verse 33. Jesus says this, these words as he, on the night of his um, betrayal, he says this. These things I've spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, trouble, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And to close, this is the benediction from Numbers chapter 6. This is lovely. This is God teaching these two men, Aaron and Moses, how to bless their people. And God says to them, and perhaps we can all stand up as we close with this. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons, and say this to them. This is the way that you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May he be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Father God, we praise you. We praise you that you could come to us as a different sort of person. You could be a capricious God. You could be a nasty God or a vengeful God and yet when you come to us you speak peace to us you speak calm to our um, fretful souls that are so bound up in the tendency to be anxious the propensity to be fearful it's a part of us it's hard for us to have victory over us it'll be with us forever and yet you speak peace to us and you remind us that you are our refuge that you are present with us and that you've come to give us peace in the now and light understanding so that we can walk this journey until the end. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see things, see ourselves more clearly, understand the world around us more clearly, and to look outward and to be mindful of other people during this time, and to give ourselves for them, free of fear, to think of them and to serve them as best we can. Lord, may we be known for that. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name.